2: Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast.
1: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now, three time Super Bowl champ. You see him on NBC Sports Boston's post game show right now. It is Ted Johnson. Ted, how are you, my friend?
0: Good, Brian.
1: How you doing, pal? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming back, man. So My this pleasure. Patriots team, they're 5-4 and four at the bye week, which sounds good. But we're nine games into it. We saw the first three games with Mac, where they're trying to throw the ball down the field a lot. We see Zappy come in. It's a lot of play action. The past couple of games offensively, the offense hasn't looked good in any area. In fact, they're taking steps back with the offensive line. Mac has not looked particularly good either. The reason I say all this, Ted, is... Does Matt Patricia's offense right now have any sort of identity?
0: No, not 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 right now, Brian. It's it's uh it it really doesn't know what it wants to be, and it's really there's nothing I, I've seen through the first nine weeks of the season that I think they can kind of hang their hat on, other than Ramondre Stevenson breaking tackles, and and that's and that's about it. That's, so that's just about individual effort. It's not about a scheme or a concept that they they um you know that they've kind of zeroed in on. Just great individual effort. Uh, maybe from you know, uh, just you know, just a couple of players, that being Jacoby Myers and, and Ramondre Stevenson. So that's it, kind of shocking. Let's just let's just say it like it is. I mean, the fact that all the things that we were saying about this offense in training camp um during preseason was that it was it looked dysfunctional. It just did not look like it was cohesive at all. and and that was in training camp. I mean, that was a, that was a long time ago. and here we are. Nine weeks of the season, and there's nothing that this offense really does well. So that's very, very concerning. Even though the record's five and four, that's a deceiving five and four. They've, uh, you know, they they haven't looked great in a, in a lot of these wins, and particularly the last two wins. Even though they have won the game, you know, won their games against the Jets and the Colts, they, those were not convincing wins by any stretch of the imagination. So the offense, to me, there's ten days before their next game, Brian, against the Jets. To me, this is the important this is the most important bye week uh in, in for Bill Belichick. Really, there's a lot at stake during this bye week if they are going to um, you know, I, I think um, you know, get some positive forward momentum for this program going forward. Right now, it just there's more questions than there is uh answers at this point.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully it's nothing like the bye week we had a year ago, because after that, everything kind of fell apart for this Patriots team who went into the bye with the number one seed in the AFC and then everything obviously fell apart. So speaking of that, Ted, just these 10 days, what the Patriots are doing, what do you think they should do offensively? What have you seen this year that actually does work with Mac Jones? Or is it something they haven't done that they need to implement more?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I think the, the easy answer for that, I've been trying to rack my brain. How do you how do you fix this? You know, you kind of look at maybe what teams have done with other quarterbacks that have maybe kind of struggled coming out of college. I mean, here's here's Mac. Uh, you know, Mac Jones. He's in his second year. He had a great uh, rookie year, but he's clearly uh, regressed uh, to start this season. And what do a lot of teams do in this situation when you have Brian, a a first round draft pick? I mean, he is a guy that you. You placed a value on him. You got him in the first round. There's to me, there's an investment in that player, and you have to kind of see what you have in this player. So, what a lot of teams do, I think, in this situation, Brian, they go back, they go to what the quarterback's comfortable with. What was he doing in college? What made him good in college? You see it with countless quarterbacks. Take what uh, was going on maybe down in Miami with Tua. They're going back and doing a lot of the things that he was comfortable with. You know, I would say if there is, if case in point, you know, when you put Mac in the, in the shotgun and you do RPOs, he looks a little bit better. Let's face it; he had uh, twelve RPOs in the Jets game, and he looked okay. It wasn't great, but better than what he looked up to this point. Last week, I think that number went down to six, and he and he had a terrible game. So I just lean into what at this point it feels like Bill's been really struggling with, kind of, I don't know, having Mac jones dictate terms uh as far as what he wants to do and what he's comfortable with but i think you got to sell out to what he's good at and what he's comfortable with from this point in that's really why you see a lot of these quarterbacks that were struggling and they were trying to these coaches former coaches a lot of these players trying to fit him into something that wasn't working you got to go back to really what what they do well and that's probably more rpo stuff let him make decisions let him make uh audibles I think there's very restrictive in what they can let him do as far as changing the play based on what the defense is doing. And that's a huge shift in philosophy from how he was coached last year under Josh McDaniels. So the, the the simple answer to me, Brian, lean into what Mac Jones' strengths are, go look at his college tape, take uh, what he did well at, at, at college and from last year and start doing more of that. But right now they seem hell-bent on kind of running this new system and letting Matt Patricia – really have his fingerprints all over this offense
1: right it just seems like that's basic coaching right like do what works well for your player and we've seen this throughout the belichick era with players on the defense they they got a lot out of right but like tua that's a perfect example you look at him he was really good running and using rpos at alabama mac was too i mean 19 percent of his attempts came out of rpos so why not just put him in the spread do what worked for him at the collegiate level it just seems like this point is too obvious and Why are we trying to implement Matt Patricia's system that Matt Patricia's system, it didn't really start until what, like four or five months ago, which to me is the most perplexing part about this whole situation, which kind of circles me back to Patricia. You look at it, Ted, and look, I am empathetic to the fact that this guy has been put in a position he's never in before, and it seems like he's in over his head. But how difficult is it, too, that he's actually not coaching the quarterbacks, he's coaching the offensive line. Which is really struggling right now. Andy's calling the plays. Like, how difficult is that for a coach to do on game day? Did you have an experience where that happened at all throughout your career?
0: Never. Never, wow. Brian. Never have I ever seen this setup. I mean, and that's why I think there's so many people were, were adamant in their in their convictions about that decision and, and saying that it it just how is this gonna work out? And it's kind of you know, it, it's kind of turned out to be true with what a lot of the people kind of thought. And I thought the same thing. I mean, it's just offensive line is such a hard position to coach, Brian. It's its own kind of ecosystem. The offensive line, offensive linemen. There's nuance to it, there's subtleties to it. And this new system, the Shanahan system that they've kind of implemented, there's you have to be so adept at teaching that. It's again, it's it's zone blocking, it's teaching guys to work together. Um, it takes so much time and reps and continuity and and uh, and, and buy-in, if you will, from everyone for for it to work. There's just too many things that I think can go wrong if you if you're you know with this new system. If you if not everybody's on board or is, you're not you're not uh, you know repping it enough. And so that that's shy. it was shocking to me because there's so much pressure on the play caller and there's so much pressure on an offensive line uh, coach. Just independently of those two jobs, or you have to say to have one guy do both, who's never coached offense in his life, and coach an off a position group that he's never coached since 2005. Brian, it it just really was so obvious that it was doomed to fail, and so it's um it's not surprising that this is exactly where the Patriots are. And if you if you ask everybody before the season started about this situation, everyone's default Brian is always what. Eh, Bill will figure it out. (laughs) Will he he figure it out? Are you sure about that? There seems to be – it's kind of – you look at kind of what's going on. No Tom Brady, no Josh McDaniels, no Ernie Adams. Bill's got his guys in. This is the guys he's wanted. This is how he envisioned his offense with with the people in the front office and with uh, the people he's got in uh, in offense. This is what he envisioned uh, for his team post-Tom Brady. And right now it looks – Like a major fail,
1: yeah, no doubt about it. And if you look at it too, I found it interesting this week that Bill actually said publicly that C.J. Mosley and Shaq Leonard knew what was coming. If you look at the Patriots this season, first quarter has been atrocious, right? Twenty ninth in scoring, which is okay. If you're a good coach, you can script up some place, even if you don't have the best players in the world. Like that should be advantage offense in the first quarter. That hasn't happened, so. do you think that him saying that publicly is actually calling out Matt Patricia?
0: You know, Brian, I think you might be the first guy. And I i, I was—I had some uh, an opportunity on, on a show yesterday to maybe get that in. And I was unable to do that. But what you just said to me is what it is like in it, it, a lot of people. I don't know if I've heard anybody say suggested, you know, everybody's saying, well, that's sending a message to Mac Jones. I I'll be honest with you, I played 10 years at middle linebacker and I was tuned into a lot of the nuance and the, the game within the game and, and looking for tips and looking for things I can glean for that might tip off to what the play is. I've never seen a quarterback other than Marino uh in one game not changing his audibles from the week before. So we we're like, <laughs> all right, well, we know we know this means slant, right? And uh my boy took it, uh, you know, Todd Collins took a, a pick six to the house because this was the audible of the week before we played him. He did the same audible. It was a slant. Then my boy Todd picked up. That was like the only time I've ever seen that. So the point the point is, what is going on is that the Patriots' offense has become so predictable, so limited in what they can do. They're basically leaning on two players, which is Jacoby Myers and Armand Stevenson. So a defense can pick up what you're doing because of the tendencies. And that is amazing to say that about a Patriots team because that is what – they were the masters in, was scouting the opponent, knowing the tendencies, having us all prepared to look for certain things in the game so we were can anticipate what's coming. The shoe's on the other foot now, and that is really, really hard to, to explain. But I think, in, in, a, in a way, what Bill was doing was sending a message to his best buddy, Matt Patricia, when he really doubled down on, on that question and, and kind of emphasized that the Jets last week knew what the plays they were running. The only thing I can think of is that's not directed at Mac Jones. I just don't think it is like a lot of people think it is. I think that was really more directed at Matt Patricia. So that to me is interesting because that is the first real kind of uh, public uh, pushback or or crack in the uh, foundation, if you will, maybe between the the relationship between Matt Patricia and Bill Belichick.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and you just look at Ted, like last week, the red zone play calling was horrible. And how many times did we know exactly what was coming on first and ten, which puts Mac in a brutal situation on second down because the Patriots this year they're 31st and expected points added on second down because everybody knows what they're doing on first down. So Mac's in an obvious passing situation all the time, which just gets him into trouble. But that does bring me to Mac, right? Because I felt like prior to the bye week last year, we looked at Mac Jones and we said, Holy shit, the Patriots have their quarterback for the next decade or so. So how much of this, these issues are on Patricia and how worried are you about Mac?
0: Yeah. So I'm worried about Mac for this year, Brian. We got what we have eight games left. Um, I, I'm just worried about him being lost for the season. His head is so kind of jumbled up and he's got too many things he's thinking about. He's worried about turning the ball over. He's trying to make plays. He's, he's doing things that he really didn't feel comfortable with at the, from the beginning of the season until now. He's, Maybe confused on on the audibles. Can we audible here? Can we not audible? Um, you know, maybe there they tell him, "Hey, you know what? This is the play. Go with it." And so he sees something that probably won't work in the play, but he's got to go ahead and do it anyway because his coaches aren't comfortable for whatever reason uh, for him to make uh, you know for him to make the audibles. And so you have you have a guy that I think mentally right now, Brian, he has lost confidence. So, so it's a crisis of confidence right now with him. His timing's off. He doesn't trust his offensive line. Uh, the continuity with the wide receivers is non-existent. I mean, you had guys in and out of the lineup. You know, Kenneth Bourne's in the doghouse one day, and the next day he's dropping passes. You know, De- 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 Devontae Parker uh, was has is, is been a no-show except for one game early in the season. Now he gets hurt. Um, where's Nelson Aguilar, you know, in this whole thing? I mean, the only thing he really has to lean on is, is Jacoby My- Myers, who uh, fumbled, uh, you, know, a, you know, the ball away last week. And so, offensive line the 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 new uh, play caller who I don't think sees the game Matt Patricia sees the game the same way Mac Jones does and I think that's why it worked with with Josh because I think they saw the same things and so it's a lot of different factors now Mac Jones there's some of it's on him but I just feel like he has kind of been the what how the season started training camp the uncertainty the lack of buy-in up to this point has him mentally kind of fried right now. And so I think I worry about getting him back this year. You can start fresh and clean slate starting next offseason and, and bring in different coaches or figure it out in the off season. But right now, Brian, I would say for this season, unless they come out of the bye week with totally something different, I feel like for the rest of the way, the kid's kind of broken.
1: Yeah, and I act, I feel bad from like the Monday night game. I mean, that was an ugly scene at Gillette which I thought was unfair to Mac. Like just don't play him if that's going to be the case if he's going to have a short leash. That never made sense to me. But hey, do you think Bill would do that like after a year where he made a decision that everybody said this is a stupid decision and Bill has done things before where he proved everybody wrong. This time it's not going to happen. Do you think he will move on from Patricia as the play caller and give it to somebody else? Bring somebody else in from another organization possibly?
0: Ooh, I mean, that's that's interesting. I like. I mean, I like to see how the, how it looks at the end. Um, we, we know the last three seasons, Brian, the Patriots have gotten worse uh, and not gotten better. It is a alarming trend because for the first 20 years prior to the last three years, this team historically just gets better and better and better as the season goes on. So um, if you were to look at this year and kind of the best predictor of the future is usually the past in the recent past is that the Patriots gotten worse as, as the season goes on. It's hard to think that they're going to do anything different this year. So, you know, he might be – the pressure is going to be so great if Mac Jones looks terrible the rest of the year, they don't make the playoffs, or if they do make the playoffs and get bounced like they did last year in an embarrassing fashion, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Bill. And I think at the end of the day, Bill will do what Kraft wants. Kraft intervenes, believe it or not, Brian, more than you realize on personnel Mm -hmm. decisions and other things. And he will he will step in and he will say, you know, Bill, this was an orn and he said it at the owners' meetings this past March. Bill does things in an unorthodox way, and you're seeing this unorthodox way. It doesn't work as well when you don't have TB12 as your binky covering a lot of the mistakes that you make. Uh, Josh McDaniels on offense, Ernie Adams in your ear, and so he's more he's more vulnerable and more exposed than he's ever been. And I just can't imagine him continuing down this route again next year. I I think is is much uh arrogance and uh kind of uh self-importance that Bill has, the vision he has for himself, that he will that he will uh he will do what he's gotta do to turn this thing around because doing it the same way next year like they did this year, I don't think it's the right call.
1: Yeah, I think it is interesting because Kraft, Here's what everybody says, and Kraft knew what everybody was saying about making Patricia the play caller and what a joke it was going to be. And it turns out it's been a joke yeah. pretty much all season. The
0: one guy I mean, he, you, I mean, you had the report. Sorry, Brian, to interrupt, but just, I mean, Phil Phil Perry was saying at the combine, uh, that guys, the other teams were like scratching their head, and that, that was a the biggest mystery around NFL circles at the combine was Matt Patricia and Joe Judge named offensive quarterbacks coach and signal caller, offensive coordinator. That had a lot of people just in the front offices of the NFL scratching their head.
1: Yeah, this is the year after Patricia's old quarterback wins the Super Bowl. And now we're seeing what Brian Dayball is doing with, I don't think Daniel Jones is a great quarterback, but we're seeing that he's made that Giants team actually competitive. So having good offensive coaches, it seems to help you. And the Patriots right now, they're in a really bad spot. The one guy that aggravates me that they haven't really got involved until last week was Hunter Henry. Like So Hunter Henry's biggest two games prior to this were with Bailey Zappi. And Hunter Henry, I'm not telling you that he's Travis Kelsey or Darren Wall or any of these elite Mark Andrews of the world, but he's a pretty good player for the Patriots. And for most of the year, it said he was almost like invisible when Mac Jones was on the field, which to me, he was like his safety blanket last year. It felt like every time he threw him the ball was either a touchdown. He had nine of those or a first down. And they've like eliminated the tight end from the offense. I, I can't comprehend that one at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I. I- I put, you know, Hunter Henry in there. So he had what nine touchdowns last year? I don't know if he led all tight ends, but probably not Kelsey. But he was up there as far as tight end. I think he has one this year. Um, I put I, I kind of put Hunter Henry, and I'm a big fan of Kendrick Bourne kind of in there too. I I just like to mesh the two, if you don't mind. Just those two guys to me, I know Kendrick Bourne had a drop last week, but for whatever reason, he's been in the doghouse. That guy I thought was going to be your best offensive player, that being Kendrick Bourne. And I was thinking that Hunter Henry was probably, you know, maybe your third or fourth best player on offense. And clearly, that's not the case this year. Why the tight ends haven't gotten involved more? I have no idea, it, it, honestly. It's 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 a head scratcher. I, I really don't. Um, but really, there's just a lot of guys that you were counting. Kind of, hell, Nelson Aguilar had a, an outstanding uh, training camp, um, and 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 he's been non-existent. So um, there's a lot of guys in this offense that are being overlooked. Hunter Henry, certainly, Brian, is one of them.
1: Yeah, I'm take committed to the Bourne thing as well. And I just feel like, I don't know, it's obvious to me that they he had two guys last year, weapons that really work for him, and Myers, obviously, but Bourne and Henry. So it would feel like you would feature those guys even more this year because they work with the quarterback and they haven't done that whatsoever. Ted, how many points do you think this Patriots team would score against you guys? Like three, six, maybe, or you oh, think you would shut he- them out?
0: You know, I mean, what was the? Uh, I mean, 2004, my last year, probably a lot of people think that was our maybe our best team. You know, and in, in the you know and in, in the during the dynasty era, um, you know, we played the Colts and it was averaging 600 yards a game. Come uh, in the playoffs when we played them and they held, we held them to three uh, three points. So it would be, you know, you know what you should do, Brian. Look up the results of the 2004 Buffalo Bills game against us, uh, and I feel like. J.P. Lossman was the quarterback (laughs) at that time. Um, It's almost I think we would have that kind of production uh, against this. uh, Our old defenses against today's Mac Jones Patriots offense would be similar to how J.P. Lossman kind of did it, fared against us back in 2004. It wasn't good.
1: Yeah, it would be ugly. So this defense, uh, they've played really well lately. I mean, Matthew Judon is like a legitimate defensive player of the year candidate. We know Michael Parsons is doing his thing and. Dallas but he's been really good I was impressed with Uche I feel like okay maybe is he actually reaching his potential he did something last week which we hadn't seen I had been really committed to him to eventually breaking out I was going back to his college numbers and like he's behind only Chase Young and like his win rate I'm like at some point it's gonna happen so maybe that's the start of something but the one thing I will say about this defense Ted is they're doing it against Cleveland they're doing it against Pittsburgh the Jets Indianapolis, so do we have to see them do it against a good offense, a Minnesota, for example, before we say they're actually a good defense?
0: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Ryan, you you were here in 2019. You saw that defense started off, I think that team started off, what, 8-0? And they were on fire, and that defense was historically great. I mean, by all the metrics, the 2019 Patriots defense was historically great. They played terrible teams to start the season i mean they played teams backups teams third string players, uh quarterbacks uh you know you got the let's face it i know uh you know that a lot of people think the jets are are a good team this year but they're winning in spite of their quarterback uh, zach wilson zach wilson is not a good quarterback and he was just throwing you in you know basically passes you know and, and get interceptions for the patriots two weeks ago you, we saw last week what Sam Ellinger is. Uh, you know, that was a paper mache offensive line and a terrible quarterback. So I'm I'm very leery of I mean, the, the numbers will probably the metrics probably for this team are probably excellent. I mean, probably yeah. DBOA, you want to go DBOA, which factors <laughs> in all these different things. The Patriots probably have the number one defense. They're going against crappy competition, Brian. Um, you know, who the best quarterbacks they played this year. Maybe you Lamar, would or Lamar Jackson, Rogers, and they lose uh, Aaron Rodgers and Tua Tagovailoa. Would you say those are maybe the best quarterbacks yep. they They lost to all of them. They yep. lost to the those top three quarterbacks they played against. They're zero for three, and so you know, let's, let's face it. They step up in weight class coming up the next eight games. You got, you know, you got Burrow. You you got you know you you got uh, you know Josh Allen. Um, you know you got Tua again, and so. You know, even Kyler Murray and Derek Carr, I know they're having off seasons, but those are good quarterbacks. You got to I got to wait to see what they do with those guys, Brian, before I make any determination on what this defense is. It's a good defense. It's a solid defense. It's a smart defense. But is it a great defense? You got to play the great quarterbacks before I can determine that.
1: All right, Ted. So you mentioned Peyton Manning earlier and you guys kind of owned Peyton, not kind of you guys owned him in your era. So I'm wondering, who was the quarterback that your group got, I don't want to say worried about, but who was the guy that you were the most concerned about when you guys were getting ready for?
0: Ooh, uh, you know, that's a good question. You know, I don't know if Roethlisberger scared us, but, you know, he he was up there. And, and even though we, quote-unquote, owned the coach, and we did. Sorry, Peyton, I'm 7-1 against you on the teams I played against. You know, Peyton started getting the <laughs> Patriots number a little bit. After I retired, you know, just saying, it's just the facts. <laughs> but uh, they, they, we, you know, Peyton scared the hell out of us. Um, he did. Uh, it was even though we kind of had a beat on what they were, they conceptually they were trying to do, and I think we played them, uh, our executed what our game plan was, and really targeted what his their weaknesses were really well. He was just a guy that never, never gave up, and you always were worried that he could uh, could, could come back and beat you. Who were the, you know, Denver. At the time, I'll be honest. Early in my career, Elway was a guy, but in the second part or the first part of the dynasty, the Broncos, because Elway left, you know, maybe wasn't as good. But at the at the end of the day, quite honestly, the guy that scared us the most was probably Peyton, and we still, even though my my you know, my games against him, we were we were still uh, had an excellent record. That was far and away the guy that we feared the most.
1: You guys didn't run into McNair a lot, right? Because I mean, he was pretty good in that early two thousands
0: area. He was, you know, we played him, I think in the 2003, we played the, the uh, Tennessee Titans and uh, Steve, we, we won that game, but you know, Steve was a good quarterback. Um, but, you know, he didn't really scare you he, uh, with his running ability. Cause that's not really what he did. Um, he was just a big strong anchor back there who was a tough SOB and a lot of his success, I think was kind of predicated on the Eddie George running game. And so, um, that's what made him a little bit more dangerous. A lot of respect for him, but you know, it was, it was basically back then. It was Roethlisberger, you know, it was, um, and it was it's Peyton Manning were our two big, you know, Roethlisberger ended our 21 game win streak in 2004 as a rookie uh, when we, they beat us in Heinz Field uh, midway through the season. Of course, we uh, we got him in the AFC Championship game, uh, you know, a couple months later. But um, but yeah, it was. It was it was really Peyton Manning and and then everybody else.
1: All right. So earlier this week, Bill said that the two most explosive players that he's seen are Lawrence Taylor, obviously, Bill's favorite player of all time and Rodney Harrison. Did you have that same reaction when you saw Rodney come play for you guys the first time? Was he that much of a freak?
0: You know, Rodney was 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 reckless and played wild and played with a, a passion. It was, you know, I don't know. I mean, I play with Lawyer Malloy and I love Lawyer, and they. but they were not too dissimilar. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, but Rodney was the perfect kind of guy to come in because he bought into Bill and Bill empowered him and gave him a lot of power and said, I want you to kind of bring that nasty attitude and and let him have free reign. And so he got to be the best version of himself as a football player on the New England Patriots. And so that was a gift to us. And that was probably a gift to Rodney and he was he I, I mean, I love the guy. I mean he should he should be in the in the Hall of Fame. So you know Bill Belichick, loving Rodney Harrison, I have zero problem with that. I love the guy um and because he he just he he uh, he showed up every day. he had a chip on his shoulder in practice, he had an edge. Um, and that, you know that was uh that was a big part of what we needed, particularly in that secondary. You need a, a, a guy like that, I think, in your secondary, a junkyard dog, to kind of raise the level of competition for everyone in that secondary, and he was certainly that guy.
1: Yeah, it's a fucking joke that he's not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, wh- who who would you rather have on your defense, him or John Lynch? I mean, Rodney Harrison was a better player than John Lynch. Are you John
0: kidding Lynch. me? Please. I mean, it was uh, John, <laughs> God bless him. He was a great qu- cover two safety or in the box, uh, you know, safety, if you will. But Rodney could do a lot of different things, and – and, and just played much more with an edge I think than John. All
1: right Ted, before we let let you go, who talked the most shit on the that defense? Was it Rodney was it Ty Law who was like the biggest talker?
0: Oh, Ty, oh, Ty I think Ty, both of them. I mean, you 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 would probably hit it right away. It was probably I would say definitely Rodney, Ty loved to talk shit. He was his <laughs> his shit talk game. I mean, it was it's so good. The further the further out you go, it usually gets better. The cornerbacks, DBs, those guys play with such an edge, and they got to have, you know, a confidence. You know, even if it's if, if they're faking it, they got to they got to g- give you uh, the impression that they are they are not afraid of you. So those guys were excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, Willie McGinnis, believe it. I mean, Willie McGinness, Brian could talk shit with the best of them. And offensive linemen, they don't know what to say. They don't have comebacks. They're just they're just offensive linemen. They don't want to get into <laughs> it with you because they're tired. And Willie Mack could just dice them up with his words. And, and and the look on their faces were, were hilarious. So I would say Ty law number one, Rodney, and and number three is Willie McGinnis when it comes to the shit talk game.
1: Yeah, I feel like Willie McGinnis doesn't get enough credit for that early dynasty. I mean, the guy had the I most agree, sacks buddy. in the history of the postseason. He was a ridiculous player. All right, that is three-time Super Bowl champ Ted Johnson. Make sure to check him out after every Patriots game on NBC Sports Boston. Ted, thank you so much for the time, man. Great stuff. We really appreciate it again. Welcome back into off the pike. Great stuff there from Ted Johnson, not only on this Patriots offense, which is struggling right now, but the great Patriots defense of the early 2000s. Love talking with Ted Johnson. Great stuff. So I do want to get to the Red Sox because we actually have a lot going on with the Red Sox right now as free agency is underway. And the Red Sox, obviously, this is one of the biggest off seasons we've seen in recent history for this organization. So Raphael Devers, of course going to be a free agent after next season if they can't get a deal done. Alex Speer had an article up at The Globe where basically the two biggest takeaways from this, let me get to the first one, is Rafi says he will not talk contract during the season. Well, first of all, what I'd say to that is bullshit, okay? Never believe a player when he says he won't talk about a contract during the season. Let's just say this as a hypothetical Hey, Rafi, we know we didn't get a deal done in the offseason. I'm not saying they'll do this, but here's $400 million. Yes, he's going to listen if you do that. So I don't buy into that whatsoever. It's like a tactic by the agent. It's never worked. Like, it's not going to work. Bogarts this season said that prior to the year. They didn't want to talk about contract after the season started. Bogarts himself said publicly, hey, actually, we will talk about the contract. And they didn't end up talking to him. The Red Sox didn't. It's a failure on their part. But the point being, don't buy into Rafi saying that. The big note, though, is that the two sides are still far away. And remember, what we found out around the All-Star break, that the Red Sox had offered Rafi a contract that was similar to Austin Riley for $212 million. Austin Riley's a really good player, phenomenal player. But with Rafi, you have to look at it from his perspective. Rafael Devers is at a situation where at that particular point in time, he was two years away from free agency. And he had already agreed to over $11 million in arbitration. This year, his projection is a little bit south of $17 million. So the point being is it doesn't behoove Rafi to take anything less than he wants because he can always hit the market in terms of free agency. So he knows a big deal is coming. He's entering his 26-year-old season. And my big thing, and I've said this for months now, is I don't understand why they haven't offered him the Manny Machado deal. 10 years, $300 million. He's a $300 million player. And you're paying for the bat, not the glove. He's improved defensively. We all know he's never going to be Nolan Arenado. He's never going to be Matt Chapman. But his defensive numbers were decent for the majority of the season. They slipped off at the end when he was dealing with an injury. But again, you pay him for the bat. You worry about the defense later. Here's what I do know about Rafi. Past four seasons. 149 doubles first in baseball. 15 more than any other player. 108 home runs ninth. 591 hits third. If you look at his slugging percentage, 532, that's 10th in baseball. This is a guy that is basically top 15 in every offensive statistical category over the past four seasons, and that was when he was in his embryonic stages as a major league player at 22, 23, 24, and 25. He's entering his prime right now. You don't think he's going to do that for the next five to six years. In fact, the next two to three years, he's probably going to be better than he was the past two seasons, which is an incredible player. You pay for that, okay? Okay. And this is the reality of how baseball contracts work. I'm sorry, the back end, yeah, maybe it doesn't look pretty. But in the case of Rafi, you're talking about his 36, 35-year-old season, not 39 or 40. Unfortunately, if you want to win a World Series in the coming seasons, you're going to have to eat some of that money. So just get it done. Okay, and the other component to this is you lost Mookie. You could lose Xander very quickly here. You can't lose this guy. It's just a bad look for the organization. It's bad for business to not keep great players around. And Rafael Devers is a bona fide star. You need to get a deal done with him now because you don't want this hanging over your head all season like it did with Bogarts, where Bogarts was talking about it all the time. The Red Sox were asked about it all the time. Just get it done now so it's not a distraction. All right, then we got to get to Bogarts because Scott Boris, of course, basically runs all these things, runs the GM meetings. He does everything. He's in control of the entire sport. This is what he said about Xander. Really, this is the first time the teams have had a chance to sign the X-Man. I think they're finding it to be marvelous and a marvel opportunity. Corniness aside, this is sort of where Boris thrives, where he's got everything going on. He's got all these big clients and he's wheeling and dealing right now. This is a very dangerous game of chicken that the Red Sox are playing. You look at the shortstop market right now. I don't know if that $200 million is going to be there for Xander. In fact, I don't think it is. But a lot depends on Trey Turner and Carlos Correa, right? Because you think about the two teams, really. The Dodgers are going to get one of them. If they don't keep Turner, they're going to get Correa. And the Phillies would like to add to their shortstop group. They just made it to the World Series. We know what Dave Dombrowski does as a front office man. He's going to be willing to pay big money to get one of those guys in there. It would scare me, right? Now, if one of those spots opens up and Xander gets a really big offer, it's a dangerous situation, right? Now, I think you're looking at six for 28-ish per season. So what's that? About one set under 170, $168 million. The Sox should be willing to pay for a deal like that. That's through his, what, 36-year-old season. He's still going to produce for you offensively. He actually improved defensively this year. And if you lose him, it's going to be a horrible look, especially if you're not getting Turner or Correa either. Like, if you don't get one of those guys and Xander's elsewhere, it's a really bad look for the organization. But the one thing I'll say is, remember, the Red Sox let this happen. You let it get to this point. And Bogarts is a loyal guy. He went to the organization in 19 and asked for an extension and took a contract that Scott Boris didn't want him to take. That's why we're here with the opt-out, right? And he's going to be wooed by other clubs. Xander wants to be here. But to a certain extent, if the Red Sox aren't close to what these other teams are offering him, I don't blame Xander for one second if he leaves, if that's the scenario. Okay, another development with the Red Sox is we have these meetings underway. Underway. Chris Cotillo had this from Mass Live. The Red Sox told Whitlock he will almost certainly be a starter in 2023, per Brian O'Halloran. They also plan to have Tanner Houck build up as a starter, but there's still a chance he could pitch out of the bullpen. All right, let's start with Houck first. Houck could be viewed as an asset here, right? Because he isn't even arbitration eligible until 25. They have him under club control until 2027. So if you want to go... In the trading market, right, if you want to go shopping, Tanner Houck's value is higher as a starter. So that's maybe where the Red Sox are at with this, where maybe they know Tanner Houck's not a starter long term, but they're saying they're going to work him up to be a starter because maybe there's a team that bites on Tanner Houck and you can get something that you want in return to help your big league club, right? So that could be part of the calculus there because the reliever numbers with Houck are much better. 214 opponents batting average compared to 2.59 as a starter, 2.98 opponents on base percentage as a reliever compared to 3.53 as a starter. And second time through the order, he was pathetic, 7.71 ERA. He really struggles with his consistency and his command at times because, I mean, his stuff is crazy. I mean, the movement on the slider is ridiculous. So, that could be what's going on here. I don't believe the Red Sox will use Hulk as a starter. Like let me make that abundantly clear. If Hulk is a member of this team, he's going to be in the bullpen. So, I don't buy into the comments in terms of what it means for the Red Sox. I buy into those comments as oh, this could be bait to trade Hulk. All right, as for Whitlock, he's signed through 2028 with two club options for his prime years through his 32-year-old season. I don't think there's anything wrong with him being an elite reliever in Major League Baseball. We know he's that guy. So I have no issue with that whatsoever, based on the contract, too, if that's what he is for his entire career, right? The Andrew Miller type, if you will, the Josh Hader type that can give you multiple innings, right? I just thought the way they handled Whitlock last year was unfair, right? Where And look, part of it was he could not pitch in Toronto because of the vaccine mandate. And then, of course, you had the unfortunate passing of Rich Hill's father, so they needed a spot start. I would have just gone back to Whitlock in the bullpen earlier than the Red Sox did. This isn't me second-guessing it. I said it at the time, especially because they were trying to build him up during the season, and to me, that's unfair to the player, right? I understand difficult circumstances and all that, but I just felt like that was a failure. But, and if you look at the numbers, obviously, as a starter, wasn't great. 4.15 ERA. Second time through the order, he got clobbered. 2.99 opponents batting average. 9.01 opponents OPS. But... Remember, I don't look at that and say this is what Whitlock is as a starter. He was learning to go through the second time through the order, the first time ever at the big league level. Sure, he's done it in his career before, but not at the big league level. So I just felt he was put in a difficult situation. I don't mind if you start this season with Whitlock in the rotation. On a couple of conditions, you still need to get a front-end starter. We've given you the names, Rodon, Verlander, DeGroms out there. They need to land a big guy. If it's not one of those guys, the Bassets of the world, they have to get somebody in there in terms of a frontline starter to add to this rotation. But with the Whitlock situation is if you want to find out what you have for a guy that's under contract through 32, and if you think he can be at two or three in a rotation, that is super valuable to the organization. I have no issue with it whatsoever. The thing is, though, if you do that, you have got to add to the bullpen because you look at John Schreiber. This guy they completely wore down because outside of Whitlock, until Whitlock went back in the pen, Hauk ended up with an injury. Deekman sucked, and Josh Taylor never pitched. You didn't have consistency in the bullpen. Schreiber was so good early on, right? Where start of the season and through uh, through July thirteenth, oh 060 ERA, one nineteen opponents batting average, zero point six zero WHIP. Well, from July 14 through the end of the season, 34 innings, the ERA is up to 371, 248 opponent's batting average, a 129 whip. He was completely worn down. He was gassed. So what that says to me is you need to go out there and land somebody in the reliever market. The guy that I'm looking at, and Hein Bloom may actually like this, it's Taylor Rogers, right? He had trouble with the long ball after the trade to Milwaukee. 2.35 home runs per nine. That was the fifth worst after the trade deadline. But it was really out of character because in San Diego, he was at 0.2, which was the 16th best. So he had some issues there, which again, that may be an opportunity for Bloom to get a guy at a lower price than he ordinarily would have been at. But if you look at it last two years, strikeout rates, 32 and a half. That's 14th of 138 qualified relievers. Walk rates at 5.9, which is 22nd. So this guy is a really good pitcher. You look at the Sox walk rate, that's at 9.9 last year out of the bullpen, 25th. We talked to Cora, remember, a month and a half ago, two months ago on the podcast, and he said they need guys out of the bullpen to throw strikes. That was a big thing that this team was missing last year. This guy throws strikes, and they didn't have a lefty last year. Remember, no Taylor, no Diekman. They had no lefties, and this guy's from the left side, and the Red Sox last year, 435 ERA from their left-hater relievers, which was 21st in baseball. He fills a need that you need, and the lefties, just 167. Against this guy last year, and his slider is absolutely filthy. Opponents hit just one ninety-one, which is another reason Hein Bloom would like him, because Hein Bloom fucking loves sliders. I mean, look at all the guys he signs. All right, the other thing that I wanted to get to is just in terms of the bats. They bring back ref Snyder one year, $1.2 million. All for that. You're paying the guy nothing, and he was really good last year. Hammered lefties. OPS was over a thousand. He hit 359 against lefties and pretty good against righties, too. He hit 270. His expected slugging percentage was better than Mookie, Vlad Jr., and JT Realmuto at 472. I'm not telling you that's who he is as a player. That's how he produced last year. And of course, way less plate appearances, 177. But for $1.2 million, this is a good find for Hein Bloom. I give him credit for that. You got to bring the guy back. Now, the bats that I'm looking at, Jose Abreu as a possible DH option, right? Because you're probably looking at higher annual value, but a low contract. Like, 16 to 18 million dollar range over a two-year deal in terms of 16 each year, of course. Power numbers down a little bit last season, but he still hit 304, which was eighth in Major League Baseball. And remember, he had a slow start. He April he hit just 217. So that's a major slump to start the year. He still hit 304. And if you look at him June through the end of the season, 856 OPS, which was 19th in baseball, he hit 328, 393 on base percentage. We know that he's a professional hitter. strikeout rate on the season, which is really good. 31st in all of Major League Baseball. And JD is gone. So in all likelihood, you need somebody that can handle the bat as the DH. It's a difficult thing. He did that 29 games last year. Hosmer's kind of redundant at first base when you want to give Cassis a break because he hits from the left side too. I'd like a right-handed power hitter. And he did make a lot of good contact last year, even though he's in an advanced spot in his career. 51.7% hard hit rate. That's balls off the bat. 95 plus. That's fifth in Major League Baseball. That's a guy that I'd be after if you're looking at a short-term contract, a right-handed bat that every once in a while can play for Cassis at first base, and he can DH. Another guy I'd look at, and this one is going to cost you if you do it, is Brandon Nimmo from the Braves. So he's probably going to get something north of 100. And this all goes into what happens with the Bogart situation. But he's not the biggest power guy, but he's basically a hit machine, gets on base, and he doesn't strike out. 367 on base percentage, 16th in baseball. Walk rate 10.5%, 20th, which is obviously something the Red Sox don't do. Strikeout rate's low too, 17.2%, 43rd in baseball. Career on base percentage, 385. He hit 16 home runs last year, second most. He's never going to hit you like 25, 30 home runs. Has a little bit of power. You can play Kike, of course, at center. And hopefully he stays healthy. But I would like to add some stability to that outfield. You look at the Sox outfielders last year, 307 um, on base percentage, which was 19th. Not nearly good enough. This guy is an on-base machine. Sox didn't walk last year, 7.8%, which was not good at all. I told you his walk rate was 10.5%. And then you have to ask yourself about Verdugo. You look at this year and next year, arbitration eligible. But are you going to sign him long term? 280 hitter, 405 slug. 732 OPS, and I know some of the outlying numbers like, oh, his expected numbers are way better. His expected slugging percentage is 428. It's still not incredibly great. Career high in home runs is 13, and defense slipped last year. I'm just not super committed to him long term. I'd rather have a guy like Nimmo. He's a better player, so if you have an opportunity to strike this offseason with him, that's a guy I'd be interested in. All right, a lot more to get into. I do want to get into something that jumped out to me about the Celtics this week. We'll do that next. Welcome back in. So I did want to get into the Celtics a little bit here because I thought the Pistons win was a mature win for the Celtics. Look, it's not great that you gave up 15 offensive rebounds. Only one team on the season is north of 14. Obviously, I'm not super enthusiastic about that. But the reason I say it's a mature win is it's the first game back after a road trip, which that's always difficult. It's one of the worst teams in the NBA in Detroit that they blow And you have the Nuggets on Friday. So it's an easy look-ahead game. And the Celtics really, whenever they wanted to, they manhandled the Pistons. And they tried to make it a game in the third. And the thing that stuck out to me was Tatum was just having none of it. Tatum went for 16 points in five minutes in the third quarter. It was a show. Step backs, off the dribble threes, off the catch threes. I mean, it was just incredible to see Tatum do that. And he only had five points at halftime. And the thing that sticks out to me is Tatum didn't push the issue, right? Because the C's were dominant for parts of the first, and the Pistons couldn't hit a shot in the first quarter. At one point, they were two of 18 and 0 of 8 from three point territory. But then when he thought, okay, yeah, maybe the Pistons are going to try to make this a game, he said, nah, I'm good. I'm going to take over here. And I do think that's leadership, right? Where because. He had the recognition early. Hey, let me get my teammates going. This is good. These guys are going off. And if I have to take over, I will. That's a maturation process from your superstar. And how about some of the passes he was throwing in that Detroit game? Yeah, had the behind the back to Al in the corner for a three. The bounce pass to Pritchard in transition. The no-look left-handed pass to Jalen on the break. I mean, these are really nice passes that Tatum never had these at his arsenal a couple of years ago. And it does really feel like Tatum is at the peak of his power right now. I think. There really is something that this team is onto here where, and I know this may sound a little bit corny, but we've seen them all grow together, right? Like we've seen this happen and it just feels like if they do end up winning a championship this year, it's going to be so much more rewarding than those shortcut championships, right? For lack of a better term, like LeBron and Dwayne Wade together. Or even this to me would feel more rewarding than the 08 Celtics, where it's like, okay, let's bring in a top five player in the NBA. We've seen this team go through so much stuff together, the Kyrie years. Then you go through that disappointing 2020-21 season, right? And you think about the bubble loss to Bam Adebayo and the Heat. And then you think about the finals loss last year. Like, they've built up warts and calluses together that it's going to be really sweet to see those guys kind of overcome that. And to see Tatum go from really, really good all-star player to He's in the family photo of the best five players in the NBA right now. That's the toughest step to make. And now you have one of the guys. You have one of the guys in the NBA and something happens every night where you see it, whether it's a defensive possession where he's blocking Donovan Mitchell at the end of regulation, whether it's taking over against John Morant, beating him in Memphis, or like we said in the Detroit game, it's, hey, my team needs me now. Let me go get a quick 16 in five minutes. Like That's so rare that a player can just be the most dominant player defensively. And then all of a sudden can get you 16 points in five minutes. Like that's how versatile Jason Tatum is right now. And that's why he's one of the best players in the league. Random thought. This was incredible to me just digging this up. So if you look at the Celtics offensive rating in the half court, it's 107.3, which is absolutely ridiculous. And that's via cleaning the glass. So just to put that into context, Cleveland is second at 100.5. So that's what a 6.8 gap. That's a wider gap than Cleveland and the Knicks, and the Knicks are 20th in half-court offense. That's how much better the Celtics have been than the rest of the league in their half-court offense, and it's noticeable, right? The shooting is outstanding, and the passing has been ridiculous from this team, so it's a beautiful thing to watch. So I never thought coming into the season, I thought their offense would be good, but to be by far the best half-court offense in the NBA is ridiculous. A lot of this has to do with Tatum's passing as well. The other thing I wanted to mention is this. And I don't want to get mad about something that happened in the past, but I'm going to get mad about something that happened in the past. Hauser in that game against Detroit at 6 3 at 24 points. Scal on the broadcast mentioned that they didn't play Hauser in the playoffs last year. He talked to some of the coaches because they didn't feel like he was ready defensively. What the fuck? Okay, have you watched Hauser play this season? You played Peyton Pritchard in the postseason, who was a defensive liability, okay? And he couldn't hit anything in the Warriors series. You had this guy on the team last year, Hauser. Why didn't you play him more? It's great that the guy's going off this year. He's a big component to this team. But you had this guy on your team all season last year, and you didn't use him? And I know may shortened the rotation last year in January because they needed to make up ground and get into the playoffs and all that. I understand all that. But you had Hauser. Why didn't you use Hauser last year? When you have a guy that's that type of flamethrower, you need to use him, and they didn't do it. It's incredibly irritating to me. And by the way, Ime, of course, didn't get that Nets job. Not a surprise whatsoever that that happened. The Nets, of course, were pressured not to do it. I do wonder how much of a role Kyrie had in this because they have the Kyrie controversy going on as well. I just didn't see how you could hire the guy based on the fact that another organization is saying, we have enough information that we don't think he should be coaching this year. It would have been a horrible look for the Nets. Uh, By the way, smart last three games, 11 assists, 12 assists, 11 assists. So earlier on the season, I've talked about it multiple times. It looked like Smart was off to a slow start and you were kind of worried about him. It does seem like he sort of turned it around, making some of those Smart plays where, how about the one last night where he's diving out of bounds? Somehow he knocks the ball, he's falling. He knocks it to Jason Tatum in transition, just a ridiculous pass. And then, look, he couldn't hit anything against Detroit 0-4 from deep, but he was shooting 32.7% from the field. In October, 22.2% from deep. This month, 45.8% and 33.3%, which, of course, 33.3% not good. But obviously, he isn't the worst shooter in the NBA anymore, which he was pretty much for the month of October. I'm not saying he actually legitimately was, but he was playing like the worst shooter in the NBA for the first couple of weeks of the season. Didn't look the same athletically. Looks better over the last week and change. All right, now to our greatest Boston bet of the week. I'm going to go to our old friend, Tom Brady, this week. No Patriots game. Tom and his Bucs in Munich, okay, taking on Seattle. Now, Seattle's been a really good team. Somehow the Bucs are three-point favorites. I know the Bucs have been really messy, but the last drive, Tom was really excited after the game. I'm starting to believe that Tom now, the divorces behind him in terms of all the issues that he had there, in terms of this had to have been hanging over his head for the majority of the season. I feel like they find a way to win, and they cover That three points. So you can get that at FanDuel, our friends at FanDuel. I like Tom and his bucks to cover those three points. I may sound like an idiot for that, but I like it. I'm believing in Tom again. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.